0: And the winner is Inside the Whale Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you I would like to first thank the Academy And all the supporters of Inside the Whale Oh man, how you doing, Nantucket? Post-Oscars, did you watch him last night? Did you watch Hollywood's Big Night? Leonardo DiCaprio took home best actor or is that the is that the correct pronunciation? Either way, I watched a, a little bit of it. I watched uh, Chris Rock's intro was pretty interesting. There's a lot of controversy surrounding it, but uh, I thought he did a great job. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but halfway through I just got bored and I turned it off. And I know I know some people are like, how could you turn off Hollywood's biggest night? But I did nonetheless. Anyway, Nantucket, let's get to Brass Tacks. How are you guys doing today? It's a gorgeous, gorgeous Monday here. God, it feels like spring and we're still in February. Crazy. I'm sure a lot of you maybe have just returned and they're still suffering from that reacclimation back to the island after being away for so long. Hopefully your trip's good. Now you're back at it doing the grind, and you've clicked on it. I am Doug Cody. This is Inside the Whale. This is episode 28, and I can't believe it, but it's 28, and uh, we're rolling through it. We have a great guest for you today, Uh, actor John Shea, and uh, Island Resident for a long time was my guest, and uh, I'm excited to tell you a little bit about that conversation. But uh, I wanted to, real quick, give a big shout-out to uh, Barat. Benzera, the sushi chef who I had on a few episodes back who was, uh, had been out of Stop and Shop and looking for uh, a new place to set up shop and it looks like he found it. I saw on uh, social media and Facebook someone posted that uh, he's going to be taking over the uh, foods for here and there. Is that it? That is it. Foods for here and there. Congratulations, bro! I'm glad things worked out, and I know we'll be down there to support you. I can't wait to uh, to get it up and running, you know. And I also want to take this opportunity. I love uh, turning people on to new things, and uh, most of you people probably have Netflix, but uh, if you don't, uh, it's a great time to do it. There's so much awesome, amazing. Television and movies going on right now, which is crazy. Uh, There's just so much great content uh, between Amazon, Netflix, Hulu, all these places, these uh, outlets are pushing out great shows. Uh, You know, Netflix is just crushing it right now. I mean, that show Narcos about Pablo Escobar was amazing. I went through that season super fast, and I just recently finished up uh, Making a Murderer, which was absolutely hands down one of the most Uh, addicting forms of television I've ever experienced and uh, if you guys haven't watched it yet I highly recommend you take some time out and you're going to need some time because I think there's 10 episodes and it it's heavy it's a documentary about the murder of this woman Teresa Hallbeck that took place in uh, Maniowak, Minnesota I believe it's called and uh, it's just an insane uh, murder mystery and with all sorts of twists and turns and uh the, the, the main character is this guy, Stephen Avery, who is sort of this kind of white, trashy dude who ran a Salvation Yard, and he uh, was accused of rape and then exonerated, and then a year later uh, accused of murder. And uh, the documentary just follows all the ins and outs of uh, his of his trial, and it is absolutely riveting. I couldn't stop watching it. I mean, I was literally, every chance I... I got it on my phone, on my laptop, wherever I could find time to squeeze in an episode, I would do it, and it's just amazing, and it's really a testament to how much uh, awesome television there is out there and uh, listen, we just had a big long week of vacation, and that's what you do. You binge watch some TV right? Anyway, that's my plug for if you don't have Netflix, get it, and uh, I think I really think that uh cable is just is going to become obsolete in the next couple of years you know there's so much out there for you to to choose from between hulu and amazon and uh, amazon had that show transparent uh, which i watched both seasons Although the second season i kind of got i drifted off a little bit i didn't think it was as good but either way uh you know you have these people uh these places these media conglomerates just pushing out great content and uh I heard was listening to another pod. I listened to Joe Rogan's podcast a lot, and uh, he was saying uh, how he really felt like right now we are in the uh, the golden age of television. Right now, he feels like there's so many awesome shows, and I absolutely agree with him. There just is a lot of awesome, great shows, and uh, even in my conversation with uh, John Shea, he uh, we talked a little bit about that about the climate of. Uh, of what's going on out there in the entertainment world and uh... you know he said i think he four hundred uh... new productions are going on right now which uh, is amazing so that segues me into my guest today john shea uh... an amazing accomplished actor who uh... really you know me coming from you know as an actor starting in new york as an actor and then having a chance to sit down and and talk with someone who's as accomplished and 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 really just been a working actor for his whole life which uh you may or may not know is is really a challenging thing to do and uh you know his story was really interesting to me especially because my background i started out in new york as an actor so it was a really cool opportunity to sit down and talk about uh, you know his process and uh his story and uh, you know he's been coming to Nantucket since 1968 so he's a guy that uh, definitely knows the island you know and that uh, was really a treat to sit down and talk to him so with that being said guys let's do it here we go again it's time to go Inside the Whale. Rise now white whale. Show us your crooked jaw. Show us your wrinkled brow. Rise. He rises. <laughs> is an island. Away, away, an island. Uh, cooking with heat here, as they say. Is this your first podcast? Yes. Wow. Yes. Man, so I uh, I didn't uh, when I knew you're coming in. You were, I was like, all right. There's so many different places to start with you because, as an actor, fellow actor to actor, I mean, I used to be an actor. I guess you kind of you're always an, you're are. You're always an actor. And we but, might drag you back on stage. Yeah, I know. So, But I was like, where do I start with John Chase? So I went back and I was looking at some stuff, your YouTube stuff and the uh, your sort of career uh, with the different stuff that you've done. But I think I want to get into the training, where you got your start. I know you're from New Hampshire, right?
1: You know, I spent 48 hours in New Hampshire.
0: That's where you were born.
1: <laughs> I was born there just because my dad was teaching uh, in Maine at a, a little boarding school up there. Uh, are we going yeah 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 this is it man it's casual man this is just that's cool so look uh, but there's no uh, hospital in Freiburg Maine where Freiburg Academy was where my dad was teaching and my mom was living so they drove across the border in a snowstorm in April and I was born in North Conway New Hampshire April what you know 14th
0: so you're on the cusp of Taurus
1: no I'm right in the middle of Aries I think Aries yeah because Aries goes from basically June March thirty first to April 22nd twenty second or something. Second. I'm, I'm April
0: twenty seventh. Okay, so you're so just I'm a Taurus. Taurus, right? Okay, cool.
1: <laughs> right, my son's oh, a Taurus. It's... My son's a Taurus. So
0: interesting. So you're
1: so anyway. I was born there, but and we lived in Freiburg for a couple more years. And my dad taught, and then they moved. Both moved, wanted to go back to their hometown, which is Springfield, Massachusetts, where I grew up, Western Mass.
0: Gotcha. So so you're a Masshole. Yeah, and uh, you're you're father was a uh, prep school teacher?
1: Well, he, he was 25. You know, he just graduated from, he would come back from World War II, you know, and fought the, and beat the Nazis and, you know, like went back to Bates College where I ended up going um, and uh, got his, uh, you know, degree and got a job teaching and coaching.
0: So your dad was a soldier in World War II? He was a
1: soldier in World War II, yeah. He was a staff sergeant, led a, br- a brigade of men across uh, France into the Battle of the Bulge and fought in the Battle of the Bulge. Which was, you know, the most intense yeah. battle. And did
0: he talk to you about that? Oh,
1: in the end, when he was in his 70s, he finally let me interview him about it. Whew. But his whole life, he kind of kept all that bottled up like a, most of the guys did.
0: You know? Isn't that crazy how they, the Vietnam and those war people can just keep their very stoic? Yeah. Different...
1: But I remember waking up as a kid, hearing him scream in nightmares, you know, and I I would, it I was like a minefield, an emotional minefield. I never, you, you know, you, I realized now he had post-traumatic stress syndrome.
0: But they didn't diagnose Nobody it like that. Nobody knew what that was.
1: It was like, a, yeah, he was in the war.
0: Yeah, you, well, that's the thing, that old, that's sort of the old man, yeah. you know, you just sucked it up. That's right. You know, things were shitty, you sucked it up that's and you just right. did it. That's right. I'd and, like to think that we have a little bit of that, but I, I don't know, it's, uh, there's,
1: I don't know. I see people around me dealing with all kinds of stuff very bravely. You know, bravely, if you want to call it that, never talking about it. You know, people who are dying and they're, you know, I see them and how you doing? I'm good. i really good. And a couple of weeks later, they're dead. Jeez. Yeah. I know. You know, because they don't want to talk about it. That's fine. They're private. And, I, and that oh. whole generation, I think, was brought up to be a soldier in a way, you know, to like emotional soldiers that didn't share.
0: Yeah. I've think that, uh, I guess we deal with it in different ways and it's relevant during the time period you live. I'm thinking of my father and I guess it is a generational thing, you know, that you know, they're just, you just stuff it down and compartmentalize it and and stuff it down.
1: But I learned there was a price to pay for that too which is a lot of bottled up anger and so, um, you know, I think that we've evolved as a race. I think we are constantly evolving and so I think it's better that we find outlets for it my dad had sports which was really good
0: just loved was he a baseball guy
1: he wasn't a baseball he he was a Yankee fan I grew up in Western Mass but you know the Red Sox (laughs) we were closer to New York State than we were to Boston, you know, because Springfield is almost close to Albany, and yeah, we got the yeah, yeah. Yankee See. games. And he had a buddy who he went to college with, who pitched for the Yankees, and so we, I became a Yankee fan, which is crazy. But uh, growing up Massachusetts, but uh, he and my mom had both grown up in Springfield. He had go, they had both gone to that same high school. They knew each other in high school. My dad was a little bit older than my mom, and my dad was a captain of the football team. And it's like,
0: unbelievable, high school sweethearts.
1: Yeah, it's not really. They they knew, they knew each, each other. other they knew each other, but really they became sweethearts. When they, my, my dad finished college, he went back to Springfield to work and uh, he met my mom and you know there was love and uh, they got married. they stayed together the whole time. They stayed together forever, like 50 years, something like that. Wow, until my dad's amazing. Away. I
0: feel like I'm in that same boat. My parents are still together. Yeah, they're in their late 70s and they're still in love. Yeah, From what I can tell. yeah you know, there's affection there still, which is pretty amazing.
1: And and loyalty and friendship and all those things—they my dad and mom set a really good example for me, you know. So when I got married, I knew that there were certain things you did do and certain things you didn't do, you know. Just being around them in the house for 18 years before I went off to school, I saw how they behaved. And what they did is they had a lot of fun. They danced. They right. played music. We'd go on road trips, and they would harmonize together in the front seat.
0: You remember that?
1: I remember their singing in harmony. And I thought, okay, harmony, man. They, they are harmonic,
0: these two. Right. So he, being that kind of uh, war veteran guy, World War II, where did the, uh, being an actor, how did that fall on him? You know, was he cool with that? or because
1: I had gone to Catholic schools up until the time I was 18, growing up in Springfield. I was an altar boy, spoke Latin, you know, and there was no acting or actors or theater or anything in Springfield in those days. And so nobody ever knew, nobody ever come from Springfield, had ever gone into acting. And I didn't really discover it until I went off to Bates. I went to Bates College in Maine. And I was playing football there. I went on a football debating scholarship. I was a cap- varsity. the captain.
0: Football debating?
1: I was a, a captain of the varsity debating team in high school. Okay. Oh, so,
0: so football slash debate. Debating. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so I sorry. was thinking football debating. Is this <laughs> no. a new position they invented? <laughs> <What> no. The? <laughs>
1: no, I played football. All right. Like my dad, you know. Gotcha. What position? I was a guard, a lineman.
0: Really? Yeah. A pulling guard? Pulling guard.
1: Yeah, trapping. Because we were, we were light and fast.
0: You were trapping the linebackers. Yeah, exactly. And right making on.
1: holes for our running backs. And it was really fun. Um, but I got injured uh, at, in high school, and I get my knee in, injured again in my sophomore year at Bates, and so I was out of I was out of uh, commission. And so one day the captain of the team said, "Okay, so you're useless. It was on the field, but you got the best fake ID. Go get beer for the party tonight." <laughs> and I went over to the theater where the debating team would meet where I had my fake ID in my backpack and I as I went in to grab my fake ID the head of the theater department this elderly woman named Lavinia Schaefer 80 years old saw me mr. Shay come here sit down and I said she read this and there were 12 people sitting around the table and when it was over she said all right you've got the part we start rehearsal on Monday And that was it. I said, said, what are you talking about? And it turns out that they were doing the first reading of Much Do About Nothing, Shakespeare play, and I had been cast in the lead. And I suddenly had never been on stage, never did Shakespeare, nothing like that. But I said, okay, I did it. Um, Because I was studying government and political science. It was pretty dry. And there was a side of me that always loved, you know, like having fun. And the theater, it turns out, was a perfect combination of football And debating,
0: essentially a a team sport with words. Well, kind of. When you're doing Shakespeare, it's certainly (laughs) right. I mean, it's contact. (laughs) It was,
1: and you know, I there were sword fights that I got to do, and you know, and but then it it turns out that the director in a play is like the coach on the field, and you know, you're, you're in front of an audience, which I had been used to doing and playing ball and debating, and then like in the locker room instead it's the dressing room but you're
0: getting in costume yeah, the, and the you parallels know? are pretty similar so
1: it, it was actually a parallel and, and so I, my life had prepared me for the theater in a way that was kind of uncanny and so when I got on stage it was natural for me and I just loved it you
0: know that was it right now who was in your class any notable people that were in your class that are still at Bates
1: uh, nobody but my roommate and football team player was Brian Gumbel. You know Brian Gumble? Of course. Yeah, yeah, right. so Brian, uh, no. <laughs> well he was Who like, is this Gumble man. Okay, so he was like the only black guy at Bates, you know, there was only a black American, there was like a couple African exchange students, but Brian Gumbel was Awesome man, I loved him. and We played ball together. He never worked in the theater with me,
0: but interesting. But he went on to have a certainly a, a great uh, broadcast career, so did his brother,
1: yes, Greg. Yeah, Greg oh, who uh,
0: that's are you still t- in touch with? No,
1: I saw Brian a few times. I was on the Today Show when he was a host, you know, and yeah. I was on it three or four times. with when he was with Jane Polly, and that isn't it was, funny how the worlds collide? It's like funny, that. and then we would talk about Bates we'd talk about we lived in the animal house. Yeah. Where you know all the football players lived and It was really fun. You
0: know, it's funny cuz college very few people in my I went to Gettysburg and only a few people there's uh one guy jay jablonski who just had a big part in uh the big short and a, my college buddy is a an agent at Paradigm. Oh. Those are only two guys that I can think of. Well, actually no, my first job I was I got worked at the Daily Show was a producer. So she was in entertainment. She got me that job. But very few people that I've run into, liberal arts colleges, I, I don't know, didn't really push into that the arts that much. I don't it, think
1: it was rare. But we had a. It turns out Lavinia Schaefer was great, and she had studied at Northwestern and uh, with Eva Le Gallienne, and so she was trained really classically in the classical theater. And so um, after. I did um, Much Ado About Nothing. It turns out she retired. That was her last play ever. And so I just was lucky enough to work with her. And a new guy came in the next year, and he, he, uh, and he was great, but he brought new energy, and we started doing new plays as well. And so I spent the next two years then, my junior year, Those well, your Sam year. Shepard
0: years? It wasn't quite <laughs> Sam Shepard yet,
1: but we were doing uh, Marat Saad, you know, uh, about uh, the Russian, I mean, the French Revolution, and... I was doing comedies and I don't know I started writing and directing and I just kind of fell in love with it
0: yeah I was gonna um, so when you started uh, doing the theater and you had to make that choice to like once you get out of school did you go right to New York you know uh, Doug
1: I it's like it became clear in my senior year that you couldn't get to New York from Lewiston, Maine like the roads the psychic roads don't go there you know, and and I realized also that Boston was a kind of uh, artistic dead end. There was no theater scene happening there, and there was no there were. So what year is this? Th- you know, these are the 70s, right? So I realized there was, you know, this is before ART, and there were maybe road companies there, but there was no vibrant theater scene. So, uh one day I was sitting in the library at uh at Bates and I I was reading the New York Times and I read the Arts and Leisure section It there was an article at the Yale Repertory Theater. It was a review of a play and they were talking about um and the supporting parts were played by members of the Yale Drama School. And I went, "Drama School? What's that?" You know. So, I wrote away for their catalog and realized that Yale had a graduate degree in theater. And they had a they had a drama school, you know. Uh, there was a graduate school so anyway I applied I drove down to New Haven I was the first guy on the very first day and I'll tell you something something amazing happened you're supposed to prepare a, a comic piece and a serious piece and a classic piece and a contemporary piece so you know I did Much Ado About Nothing and then I did a serious piece
0: when of, he says prepare just for people that he's, a monologue a, a monologue <laughs> an, audition, an audition a monologue
1: exactly so I get on a stage, and by the way, it's like a Broadway stage. There's you know like 1,100 seats, and somewhere out in the middle of the dark, uh, the artistic space, director, the arti- <laughs> four or five faculty members, right. and they say, and I and I do my pieces, and I start to walk off the stage. I say, thank you, and they said, Mr. Shader, wait one second, please. Don't. What about your improv? Don't forget your improv. And I said, Wait, improv? What are you talking? You know, I didn't know. No, no, we don't tell you about the improv. That's why it's called improv. So they said, Meet you know Steve Mandillo, and this door opens, and this actor walks across the stage, and I say, hey, man, how are you doing? Uh, I said, so what do you want to do for the improv? But he goes, no, I'm in the school. This is your audition. What do you want to do? And I so think, you're on the flight." They fly. say, all <laughs> right, 30 seconds, Mr. Shea, 30 seconds. You know, so I think, what do I do? So I think, okay, all right, uh, I'm looking at this guy in the eyes, and I go, all right, two guys, uh, two brothers, uh, the Wright brothers, it's Kitty Hawk. We're launching the first airplane. I announce it. <laughs> and I say, okay, you're Orville. I'll be Wilbur. And, you know, we do this improv it's windy and you know I say Orville you know get into play and I'll pull down on the propeller and you know on three one two and three I go into a full squat and my old jeans that I've been wearing all the way down from Maine like battle scarred old blue jeans split up the crotch and the- <laughs> my everything nice pops out on the stage they're like he's hired he's in <laughs> That's what it took. And they cracked up, and they wanted to see what I and I said, "All right, we'll go!" You know, and I ran to the stage, you know, kind of covering myself, knocked, me right. kept in the scene,
0: didn't break. Wave to him. <laughs> which is even funnier, actually, just waving there with your. But they were all there. They they were so you women, got in. Women
1: in the audience, and then you know I, I got in. And when I got in, they called me on my birthday in Bates in April 14th and said, "You're in." When I got into the school, I said, "So how come?" You accepted me I found out later that there were 1200 people that
0: yeah I mean Yale rep has and, had that that
1: and 12 people got accepted out of 1200 so I said how why did you pick me and they go your audition dude you know you're that, funny you that thing you stayed in character it wasn't just your pants splitting but you stayed in so what I discovered Doug and I know you know this is that these things that I went I drove you know whatever seven hours back to Bates in my Volkswagen van and thought I've you know just destroyed myself because that was the only school I was applying to, and it turns out that the worst thing that happened to me turned out to be the best thing.
0: So you know I was just thinking that drive home, the, bring the sports analogy. It's like losing a big game. Right. You're always like feeling, and you know I played sports in college. I was a lacrosse player, and you know uh, after a crappy audition, you just oh man, you feel it's it. That's what something. The, the acting part is really the mental part of it and you're just young so you don't know how to let go of that you don't know how to be in the moment and I was going to ask you about like the, your training did you do Meisner and stuff like that was Stanislavski it was, and... uh, it was
1: Stanislavski and but a lot of mask work and mime yoga every day we started it every day with yoga and voice work and all
0: that you know? yeah and I wanted to definitely want to talk to you about this because for me the uh, my my acting coach was uh, Tanya Berzin. Is that she started yes. Circling the Square yeah. with Lanford Wilson that's right she I had a manager at the time that put me in touch with her and she really was the teacher that helped me you know they, I always you always see get out of your your own way you know I you were thinking too much and it took me a long time to be able to just realize to just be there and not think and I realize in music now my advancements in music and stuff was I was just getting in my own way and that that's the process I think that's really hard for people to understand when you're d- dealing with characters. Someone's like, well, there's a big mental component to that. You know, it, it can be very heady. But when you lose it, for me, it made a big difference. I don't know what your experience was like that. I'd love to hear about how... Certainly, you, I was
1: self-conscious, and certainly, I was insecure, and certainly, I was, you know, like, uh, it turns out that I had a really bad Massachusetts accent that I had to lose, and, you know, I had all these things that I wasn't aware of. I thought that, you know, I was uh, going to be good, but no, I got, you know, I was... Uh, it. I had to work really hard, really, really hard, um and you're right part of it though was this team thing which is like are you gonna win or are you gonna lose you know do you have a competitive spirit or don't you you can be an artist but you also have to be a fighter
0: absolutely for acting even I was just talking with Greta Feeney about this one percent of all actors make a living yeah as an actor yeah yeah think about I mean it's crazy and so you know you are very fortunate yeah you know and i'd love to know we'll get we can get into that about you know the ups and downs of it but you have to have that sort of fighter
1: You have to believe, I think, you have to be a fighter for sure, but you also have to believe that you're on a mission that's bigger than you are. And you have to believe that you're born to do this. You know, remember growing up Catholic, as I did, I I believed in something called a calling. You know, you had a calling to do something in life. And we were trained in school and at home to listen to your intuition, to find out what that calling was. And my father, who was an educator because later he went to be a teacher and a coach in springfield and a principal and then he got his phd and he became superintendent of schools and sort of you know he like helped run the educational system so it was all about training educating kids so the question is what do you do with kids well the thing about kids is that everybody's born with gifts you've got piper piper has all these gifts you don't know what they are yet but it's going to be your job as a parent to find out what her gifts are and then guide her toward fulfilling her mission in this incarnation
0: right? yeah and you you just made me think about my family okay so i had this i call it the quasi support they were like there was constantly when i moved to new york to pursue this thing that I, I i had to i feel like i had to fight for this world that i have here now because when i started it was like You know, banker. All my friends went to Wall Street and did these jobs, and it was like, "How long are you gonna give this?" You know, and I, I feel like I had to fight for that. It wasn't. It was quasi support. Yeah. They, I think I remember, (laughs) and I love my parents. They're great. They're just. They're kind of old school. They just that. You know, you you can't make a living as an actor or musician. It's just not possible, even if you enjoy doing it. You know, when are you gonna give it up? I know, did your parents ever do that no
1: my father again believed that you know if I believed in myself and I had I felt like I'd, I you know that given time that my gifts would reveal themselves and those gifts needed then to be used to make the world a better place and so Uh, you know when I went to Bates I was I told you I was a political science and government major but then in my uh, sophomore year I discovered the theater and I called him up I said dad I'm changing my major I'm gonna do this and he said all right son you know uh, your mom and I'll come up and see one of the plays they came up to see much ado and they saw what I had felt which was that
0: you know this is it
1: it was what I should maybe should be exploring not necessarily what I would do for a living but let's see how it goes And so that was a, it was a, it was uh, supportive in that way. It was like, you know, let your intuition be your guide. Because remember also that intuition in the Catholic Church is also like your guardian angels, man. Right. It's like people, things around you, spirits that are whispering to you to do this thing in life. And if you listen enough, you know, in a kind of meditative, prayerful state, you will be guided.
0: Yeah. And that component of you really. And acting, you have to truly, and this sounds cliche, you have to believe in yourself. And for every different different people, that takes different amount of time. Some people are just just have it, and uh, you know the, the other thing too about the business is you you can be the most trained, the best actor in the world, and you're in a business where. Some kid from Ohio just moved to New York, and he looks the part, and he gets that role, and he's got zero experience. And I have a, I was up for a part on uh, One Life to Live, and I went to a producer session. So you go to the first audition, and then you know they're like, "Hey, you we you get a callback." There was a callback with the producer, and then you had the director. I made it to the third round of this thing. So this is, I mean, you're talking. I I had a crappy job waiting tables. This was like. Everything is riding on this part, you know, and I do, I, th- I think about the lacrosse, men. I'm like, this is mine, I'm going to do this, and it was so competitive, uh, then you go to a taping session where the director, the, uh, all the execs are there, and you know, they're going to put you on camera, so I remember I went in there, and I did the scene, I felt like I'd crush it, but before, they had flown this kid from LA, who was probably a good 10 years younger, and I immediately noticed it, I'm like, this kid's probably 18, I'm like 25, you know, yeah, and I didn't get it. Oh. So you know, it, but I remember those nights of just waiting for the call, and uh, you know, the agent finally calls you and says, "Well, they're they're going to pass on you," but they really enjoy you know, blah blah blah. And you just feel so defeated. It's you know, just you
1: have tough. to develop a mental toughness uh, as a, any performing artist. I think any kind of artist, any whether you're a painter, whatever you're, poet, any writer. But the thing is that my my attitude was it wasn't meant to be. I, I, I was a big believer, and I still am, in a kind of destiny that helps control our lives. Not that the destiny controls our life, it's something that we decide before we're born about what we're supposed to do, and that if it wasn't meant to be, you have to let it go and move on right away. It was like a fisherman. You but know? it takes
0: years as an adult to accept that. You're throwing in the
1: line. <laughs> you're throwing in the line. You're throwing in the line. You get a fish. You get it up right to the boat or onto the shore close, and then bah, it, it jumps, right? And the line snaps. Something happens. The fish gets away. It's like, okay, what do you do? What are you going to do? You throw it back in the line. You keep throwing in the line until it works, and that's I know, it's the only way I knew to survive.
0: And when did you start working? Pretty, uh, right out of college? Did you?
1: You know, again, I was extremely lucky because, you know, so sort of my first year at, at uh, Yale Drama, I, um, you know, acted in all the plays. I didn't like the acting program there at all. And I didn't like the head of the acting program who had a clique around him and he was very sort of bitchy sort of personality. And I, I quit. And I went to the head of the school and I said, I'm leaving. And they said, what do you, what do you mean you're leaving? I said, I'm not staying. And they said, no, no, you're not leaving. OK, so what else can you do? Do you ever write anything? And I had written a couple of they read them and they went, no, you're not a writer yet. OK, but I'll tell you what, you could be a director. you be a director and here's the deal. You work for us at the LREP and you continue to work in the cabaret program here that we got because I was part of a cabaret group at night. And then you can direct all day long. You take any classes you want and then uh, you stay in the school. And I went like, okay, I'm a director, and I had directed when I was at Bates, so I, it was a, a kind of a fallback to something that I liked. But what I did is that I got there then instantly. I was free of that idiot, and I was could work with all the great people who were there at the school. And so I. Who I, was in
0: your cl- who was at Yale at the time? Well,
1: so the class behind me was Sigourney Weaver and Meryl Streep and. Geez. Uh, and uh, Albert, some- Wendy Wasserstein and. The playwrights Wendy Wasserstein and uh, Albert Inorato and Christopher Durang and uh, in my class there was Joe Gafazi and Michael Gross and anyway wow Henry this, this, Hen- Henry the, Winkler can, it? It
0: has had that sort of you know tra- you know they've had that catalog of just big people that have come out of there so you know I know all the agents look. Uh, to Yale they rats. still
1: them. they scout the everything the school you know it's like you know whatever but all I can tell you is that I graduated as a director and I was scouted by some guys who ran the Chelsea theater at the Brooklyn Academy of Music it was a great off-Broadway theater in those days so you went During to New York days, and started directing and they hired me to be their assistant director on all of their productions and part of the job was teaching at Pratt Institute. Yeah, yeah, acting yeah. and directing. And so I, I, I ran a cabaret theater there, and I, I taught acting. But the main job was working at the Chelsea. Here's how life works again. So one day, I'm auditioning opposite the other actors. I'm reading, because I'm the casting Because you're the cast, yeah, yeah, you're trying and to I'm, cast a play. I'm, I'm trying to cast a play called Dawn Song about the American na- Native uh, Native American Indian experience. And uh, the head of the theater sees me reading with these actors. And he goes, what are you doing in this directing thing? You, you're an actor. Right, I yeah. No, I did both. And he goes, no, you're fired as my casting director, assistant director. But you're- <laughs> And I want you to take this play and read it tonight and, take, and come in an audition tomorrow. It's the next play we're going to do. And I ended up getting the lead in that play, the male lead. And it was called Yentl. And uh, it was written by Isaac Bersheva Singer, you know, the Nobel Prize winning Jewish writer. And so uh, suddenly we opened off-Broadway and Tova Felchew played Yentl and I played a Vigdor, the male lead. And I transferred myself from an Irish Catholic kid from Massachusetts into Hasidic Jew. Into uh, Brooklyn? Uh, in, no, into a <laughs> oh, Polish oh, Hasidic oh, po- Polish, got Jew. Got so I grew a beard and I learned how to daven. I learned how to speak Hebrew and I grew and and it opened on, you know, off-Broadway. And... And uh, this producer who started the group theater in the Actors Studio named Cheryl Crawford started it with uh, Lee Strasberg and with Harold Klerman Came okay. to our closing night and said, "I want to take this to Broadway." And so, a couple of months later, we opened on Broadway. I was 26 years old. 26 years old, and, and I then was uh, starring on Broadway.
0: And your parents got to see that.
1: And my parents came for opening night, and my grandmother came down, and my sisters. And, you know. So,
0: would you say that was the what? What, what was the so defining the, so, break so, for so that, you, do you that think?
1: set me up in New York. I suddenly became a star in New York. I won the Theater World Award, Most Promising Actor. Meryl uh, Streep won that year for best actress and so suddenly so, yeah, i got agents and you know bang you know and they I, they started offering me jobs right and that continued for the next 18 years you know and so
0: you're living in new york basically as a working actor
1: i lived in new york and i went from one play but i went to chicago you know i got an offer to go do long day's journey in tonight out of the goodman theater see this
0: and, is something that's cool that i think when you get to that level you start going to these you go, did you do the guthrie
1: I was invited to join the Guthrie. There's ben-
0: all these cool theaters across, and I never got to experience this, yes. but I just know that I knew people that were travel working, and, oh, I got to do this play at the Guthrie. And These just legendary in the world of theater that are just...
1: But I was married. I had met Laura Pettibone, my first wife. I met her on Nantucket on Main Street in front of Mitchell's bookstore And I, when we were 20 years old. And so so how would that I we, didn't want to leave her for long periods of time. I didn't we were,
0: even get to that. How, what brought you to Nantucket well, the first well, time? Well, we
1: were living down in Soho and living, you know, she came, she, she came with me to New York and to Yale and all those things. And she studied art and and uh, photography at the art school while I was in the drama school. So we went to New York together. And all I know is that when the Guthrie would call you, they would offer you a year contract contract, or six Mm, months, and I didn't want to leave home for long, so I, I, I made a decision that I would only work in the New York theater. I so, like
0: John it. Shea learns the lesson to say the sexiest word in showbiz. No. No. Yeah, you got to do it, bro. All... <laughs> well, you got to do it because. You know, I, I, I never got to. I was such a loser, never, ne, never made it as an actor, so I never got to. I was always like, yes, I'll take your crappy job. <laughs> oh, well.
1: I had to say no, really, because yeah. I didn't think that my marriage could stand those. Any relationship really can stand these long separations. And so uh, I just made that decision because it was pretty easy. I was following my heart, you know. And I think if you follow your heart, you usually end up in the right place. So I stayed in New York, and then I worked at all the other off-Broadway theaters, you know, the Manhattan Theater Club and Playwrights Horizons, and I certainly know, uh, te- you know, the uh, Circle Circle rep, Square Rep, yeah. Uh, Circle Rep, which was fantastic, and I saw Lanford Wilson's plays and Your Teacher, you know. Did you know her, Tanya Berenson? I did know Tanya Berenson, and Bill Hurt was playing That's in the so interesting, yeah. That.
0: She she was huge to me. Yeah. I was just like she was floundering great. in New York with these like crappy acting schools and this manager that I had at the time was like, you got to go meet Tanya. And uh, oddly enough, this is a little serendipitous, she went uh, super, Brandon Routh, Routh, the, the, yes. not the most recent incarnation of Superman, but the, the series, she was, he was in my class and then he got the role as Superman and she went to Australia to shoot, like to be his coach for like three or four years. Wow. Yeah. Really? Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, So that was just uh, It's interesting that you knew her
1: I did know her You know I knew Lanford Wilson I knew the guys at the Circle Look the Circle Rep It wasn't the Circle and the Square Rep It was just called the Circle Uh, Rep Rep. But but there was the Circle and the Square I worked there as well But that was a Broadway theater company Okay Uh, It was run by a guy called Ted Mann And I did a, a one production there um, but at Circle Rep, they had all these great actors and play and, and playwrights working, and it was one of the great. It was the heyday of the New York Off Broadway theater. There were great theaters in New York at that time. Besides the Chelsea Theater, the Public. I theater. was just
0: thinking and, of you. You know Sigourney Weaver, the Flea, right? Isn't yeah. She involved in the Flea Theater. Yes, or yeah. Yeah. She and her husband. She and her
1: husband. Yeah, Jim Simpson. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they started it. That's still around. Yeah, he he started it. He went to Yale after Sigourney, but he was a director, and he started the Flea. Sigourney and I worked together later. We did a play uh, called The Animal Kingdom. And oh, all I can tell you is that it was a, a great time in the New York
0: theater. Yeah, like, yeah. To, to be there. It sounds like it. Did you ever have a crap job? Like a schlep? Did you ever have to do that?
1: You know, I I know I never did. That's I, amazing. I, I didn't. I, I honestly never did. Only because uh, I also made this other rule, which is that if I got that backup job, you know, plan, if I had a plan B, that I would... I. It would be too easy to fall back on a plan B, and so if I only had a plan A, then I would trust that the universe would sort of open the doors and make plan A work. For
0: I them. used to have arguments with my parents about the plan B, and I would said the exact thing to them. I said, "Mom, if I have a plan B, it's not I shouldn't be doing it." There you are. You know, and yeah. that lesson too. I think it, it, it. Again, I feel like a lot of these things. Hearing you talk about it reminds me of my own experiences coming up through, and it takes. For me it took, you know, your adult life to sort of connect those pieces and realize that it's an evolution and you have to believe it and you know the plan B you can't. I don't care anybody, I don't care what you do. If you're successful in your business, you probably didn't have a plan B.
1: That's right. That's right. I think you just got to go for it. Go for it. People know.
0: with plan B's are the people that need to work in cubicles and shovel paper. I don't know. <laughs> I don't you know. know. I don't horrible. know. All I
1: can tell you is that my experience was that it would be better just to focus on plan A and then even if I if I wasn't working I would just tighten my belt man I would you know like eat spam or t- t- you know find ways of just like surviving I'd get, you know I never had to get another kind of job honestly in the summers on Nantucket of course going when I was going work my way through college here and and, and drama school, you were working I did a million jobs so how did you come out here with I your came first out wife? With, no I came out here with a high school buddy of mine a guy called John heaps uh, and his godparents um, lived in town i had a house on children's beach and uh my we always went to the cape in the summer because my father being a teacher and right in school they had we had the whole summer off so we went to the cape every summer and uh, what town a, in Katuit. yeah Ketuit, okay. right a little town and so, but I, you know we had a small house and five kids and my mother and father and dogs and it was like oh i'm out of here when i was 18 when i graduated from high school john said hey why don't you come with me i'm going over to Kentucky. want to go explore that I said sure. Nobody in my family had ever been here before, so it was also virgin psychic territory. It could be my place. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I that's came right. out here with him, and uh, I, and uh, in April of 1968.
0: See, that's the, I love the dates. So you get here in 1968. What is Nantucket the 60s. like? What is you, the Nantucket like to it you was in 1968? Amazing.
1: There are like five cops on the
0: whole island. Was in Billy I, Sherry here then? No, no, he's later. He's younger. Yeah, he's a buddy years, all right. Yeah, I love Billy. I, yeah. I, we, and I had him on the podcast, and we talked about. And I love hearing the the Nantucket when people arrive, what it was like.
1: So here's what happened to me: is like, okay, it's. It's right after the Summer of Low, which is 67, right? So in Nantucket, it's the 60s, and rock and roll is, you know, the British invasion has happened, and, you know, Jimi Hendrix is still alive, and there's the, you know, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, and, you know, all kinds of good music is playing on uh, um, the jukebox at the um, Bosun's Locker, which was the bar on Main Street where everybody gravitated to. Um, but again, I have to say, Doug, like, fate sort of knocked, you know, opened the door for me, because what happened to me is my first night here ever, first day, I check into this little, um, you know, uh, house where my buddy's godparents own, I get a room on the third floor, and as I come down the stairs, um, I hear Gershwin playing, I hear an aria from Porgy and Bess, you know, it's porgy song Bess you is my woman yes you yeah, i hear this basso <laughs> profundo black voice and i think how odd that the guy who runs the tower at the nantucket memorial airport is listening to gershwin <laughs> right. And i come downstairs there's no record player there's nobody in the house there's no nothing where's this music coming from
0: yeah (laughs) and
1: so i follow the sound out to the front porch and there's an old white guy with a grizzled gray beard and he's got a baseball cap and he's drinking a bud as the sun sets and he's singing the song to himself to the seagulls on the beach And it ends, and I go, wow, where did you learn that? And he said, I was in the original road company, the national touring company of Porgy and Bess. I said, wait, that's an all-black musical, right? And he goes, (laughs) no, there's one white guy. There's the sheriff who arrests Porgy, right? And uh, he said, I played the sheriff, and for a year I sat backstage and I memorized all the songs. He said, you look hungry. Come with me. He took me over to Size Green Coffee Pot, where I got a job immediately washing dishes. I finished washing dishes for that night. Size Green Coffee Pot is now where Nick's Cafe is. Okay. Okay. It was a classic place. The AC was there. The AC. It was a classic place before that called Size. Gotcha. And then uh, in the 60s, you know, in April, there was nobody here on the island. The population of Nantucket was about 8,000, maybe 7,000 people year-round. And if you were getting here in April, you had your pick of jobs. Gotcha. pickup jobs. They were desperate for you know summer people to show up, but it was you know going to be two more months before the schools would let out. So anyway, I finished dinner and uh, Milton Zlotnick, <laughs> who ran the joint, owned it, said, I said, well, I want to go get a beer or something. He said, just go down to the end of Main Street. You'll see, go down to the end toward the water. You'll find uh, Captain Toby's bar and restaurant. So I went down to Captain Toby's to get a a drink and uh, outside, but just before Captain Toby's, I see a sign hanging over the sidewalk, and it says the Straight Wharf Theater. Now, this after my sophomore year at Bates, I've just done much ado about nothing. The story I just told you, I think theater, huh? So I open the door. It's unlocked. I walk into the lobby. I see little like Christmas lights. This is now where. Aunt Leah's Fudges. Gotcha. There was an old sailing off there that was a theater. That
0: they had a theater?
1: And I open the door, I walk in the lobby, there's a cool little Um, box office I see a flight of stairs leading up to a balcony and I see two red leather doors with brass studs and I go and I pry open the red leather doors and I hear voices inside and sure enough there's people on a stage there's a guy standing in front of the stage and I hear psst and this older woman in the back row in the dark sees me looking in the door and she says "Here, come here sit down what are you doing here and I tell her I just you know the play she says you gotta meet Mac and she goes Mac And she calls over the director of the theater, Mac Dixon, who started the theater workshop of Nantucket. And Mac comes over in a break in rehearsal, and he goes, Shay, can you do an Irish accent? And I said, you know, I could learn one. He goes, good answer. Take this script and go backstage. You're about to make your entrance. And I go backstage. They hand me a scally cap, which I put on, and I walk on stage with a script, and I say, we're from the Hibernian Furnishing Company, Missus Boyle. We've come to take your furniture. I've come you to know. take your furniture, and it's and, and I'm <laughs> and on it. stage. So I'm, this is like the April of 1968. It turns out that i walked into the dress rehearsal of a play for the theater workshop, and he and he puts you in and it, and he puts me in that it, moment. That moment and they open we open the next night or two there were one guy shy and i happened to walk in and get the par and so all i can tell you is that at the end of the week he hands me a ten dollar bill i go what's this for and he says welcome to the theater you're now this is a professional theater you're now a professional actor and we expect you to behave to act like one and he hands me a ten dollar
0: bill and so that was it that was
1: it dude that so, was it. So I stayed the whole season. I did plays every, uh, all the plays that season at night. During the day, I mowed lawns. I was a carpenter. I was a lifeguard. I did a million jobs.
0: God, so, so you, were, you were, that's a long time ago to be, you know, you've been on Nantucket, you know, for and a every, long time. every
1: summer since then. So, and that's is strangely, Doug, so, you know, eight years ago they called me up and asked me if I wanted to be the artistic director of the theater workshop which I still am the artistic director emeritus so I went full circle back to the place right. that gave me my professional Yeah, star, which you know? I think
0: we should talk about too because your your career as an actor too is pretty interesting because it's very uh, unconventional in, in the Hollywood sort of realm of the way the business works you don't live in LA you're able to sustain a career which is pretty impressive that you can't you know being on Nantucket you know, going out to, you know, L.A. in New York. Yeah. You know, that's it's hard to do that, right? Y- y-
1: yeah. I you know I commute to L.A. to work.
0: How do you define your your your, your style of acting? Do you think? Oh. I mean, I mean, just just the, the that's a crappy. I don't. I guess the question is like, you've been able to sustain a career in it, and and how how do you? Well, here's the. What thing. do you think is it, It's
1: never getting stuck doing one thing? Because the type of you
0: roles know. you get. Are, are, are you know the type of actor you are are you a lead guy you know you, i
1: i was a you know i did romeo on broadway you know a, a big door was the romantic lead in yentl and i was as a young guy i played you know uh, a lot of romantic leads right and then in, in my first film i starred opposite helen Mirren. my first feature film in a film called hussy that i shot in london and i was you know we had nude love scenes together and i was a young you know but I was 28 years old, 29 years old, and you know, with Helen, and uh, so, and I did a lot of films like that. You know, I've done 50 films. So the first. 50 films, 50, yeah. So the first. And directed how many? Two.
0: Two. 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 Well, the Great Lady was the second. Second,
1: right? and Southie was the first. But anyway, so all I can say is that after a while of playing romantic leads and playing the leading guy, it got boring. It got boring, and you know, so I get bored after a while and so it's like okay well what else can well the bad guys are always the most interesting parts in shakespeare i mean for me i had done romeo but i also wanted to play richard i wanted to see what it was like to be a sociopath i wanted to study abnormal psychology and start digging deeper into the psyche right so in my 30s what happens is that um you know in missing my first american feature film i was the the guy that was missing Jack Lemon plays my father Sissy Spacek plays my wife you know this film, worked with
0: Jack Lemon.
1: he played my father yeah and this film wins the Academy Award it was nominated what was
0: for, he like to work with he was
1: as great as you would ever hope a guy would be really supportive he uh-huh. was from Massachusetts grew up in Boston so I was like so you, a, had a, okay, you know we a had, had a, a, a bond there but I never had any scenes with Jack Lemon in missing but I was on the set for three months because I was the guy who was missing, and he, was, he came down from New York to look for me. The, this is a film for the people who don't know. Is a, is a political thriller directed by Costa Gavres, Constantine Gavras, the great Greek-born French uh, director. Uh, he had won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Film for a film called Z, just Z, that Yves Montaigne had starred, had, had starred in, in France, um, about the Greek Revolution. Then his first Hollywood film, was missing, M-I-S-S-I-N-G, about a young guy, played by me, who gets uh, abducted during the coup that overthrew uh, the Chilean government when uh, Allende, the socialist president of Chile, was overthrown by Augusto Pinochet, the military dictator who was trained by the CIA and with a CIA-backed coup they overthrew this democratically elected and 30,000 people were killed including my character, who was captured, who had witnessed what had gone on in the coup, and was writing about it and sending missives back to New York City to report on what was really going so on. This is based
0: on a true story. It,
1: on a true story, an amazing true story. And so that film wins the pa- I, I, you know, I do this film. I'm on stage, by the way, Doug. How does a film like that come my way? I was 30 years old. I was doing a play at the Manhattan Theater Club. I was playing a British rock and roll producer in a play by Stephen Poliakoff. And I was playing this son of a bitch, a really nasty, manipulative rock and roll producer who was deciding who was going to get the record contract not based on who was the most talented, but who was the most durable under his withering criticism and psychological attacks.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I just figured it out. I figured it out, John, with you. I, I got it. You're just, you've always, always, always been working. You don't let a gap go. And that's, I think that's it for you. <laughs> that's I it. got it. Yeah. I got it. Yeah. It just, when you, I, you're just always constantly working. You don't let that, there's never a gap. That's Is true. Is there?
1: That's true. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not crazy. I go off with Melissa you know, my wife, Melissa MacLeod, But No, maybe now, take now you do, but vacation. back in the day... I went from one thing to another. You went from one thing to
0: another, know. and, and sometimes two things you always at, want to be working on things. Two
1: things at the same time. I would be rehearsing a play in New York during the day, and I would then drive that afternoon and perform up in New Haven that night at the Rep. Or I would do. Uh, I would be shooting a film all day, and then I would get on stage. That, you know. But when you're young, you know, that's what you want to be doing. You want to be always be
0: working. You yeah. just did it. That's what it just felt. Yeah, you do. And here's you what happens: work. is
1: that after a while, um, people start. You know, you bang on the doors for a long time. you knock on the doors, and you're knocking on the doors. And then what happens is that the doors open, and then you you can actually do the work. What happens is that everybody goes like, "Okay, well, come on in." You know, and then you're in this other room where everybody just now wants to work with you and then they offer you work and then that just, and one job leads to another job very easily then in that world and you get agent managers and all those other stuff and if you're lucky enough actually to become a
0: star. Who's your agent?
1: You know, I had agents for many years, I had ICM and William Morris, and now I'm with a small agency in LA called SMS. I have managers who represent me as an actor. Right. Another and man- as a director. As a director and a writer, two different managers, you know. The- and so that's also good to have a teamwork. I build a team like that. You
0: yeah, know? I mean, that's just amazing. And I think the longevity was one of the words I was thinking about when I knew you were coming. It's just, you, you're clearly someone that's had longevity in a, in, in a, in a, in a tough business. You know?
1: And you know why I think? It's because my job is not done. I mean, I'm talking about spiritually. I feel like my job is not done. And the reason why I stay in shape, um, and the reason why I take care of myself and the reason why I never abuse myself with drugs and alcohol and the reason why You don't why drink? I, you know, I drink but I don't not abusively. You mm-hmm. know? You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's just like also I was lucky to be born uh without that addictive uh, gene. You know, so I'd never had to suffer through uh, what all, so many of my friends, particularly on Nantucket, had to suffer through. And in New York and in L.A., you know. Yeah. Drug and alcohol abuse problems, issues and detox and all those things. I, I, I avoided all that. But I think that it's because I feel like I'm still on this mission where, you know, for the greater good. And if I can I try to get my own stupid ego out of the way and I say, shut up to myself, you know, if I start thinking, oh, you're cool or you're doing something right. No, you think shut up. What's the job? What What do you really have to do here? What are you here to do? And that's goes back to the calling, and that goes back to the mission. Yeah.
0: Is there uh Is there a role in your career that you missed that you really wanted that you can remember that you were like yes. that was my job yes. and I didn't get it. What yes. was it? Yes. One role. The, give me the most. Well, I'll tell you profound. what. You know,
1: I told you. You know, I went to school with Meryl and then you know she got her first job. And uh, it was in a play. It was in a film with uh, Alan Alda, I think, called The Seduction of Joe Tynan. But you know, it was like Meryl g- got a job in a movie. Well, if she can get a job. I can get a job. You know. So I thought, <laughs> okay, I got to learn how to work in front of a camera. And so I, you know, I uh, I went out to L.A. on my own because in. In New York in those days, in the late 70s, the only way you could learn to work in front of a camera was to do soap operas and they wanted three-year contracts. I was offered the soap operas and I turned them down because they wanted three-year contracts and I knew that that would be an uh, artistic, emotional dead end for me. I don't like to be tied down to anything, okay? Or to do commercials, and you know, I, I was never very good at commercials. I did a couple; it was horrible. So, so it's like I had to go. I have to go to L.A. I went out to L.A. and I guest starred on a bunch of different, uh, three different shows. Then I did a mini series. So I learned how to work in front of a camera. I went back to New York and went on the stage. And then Meryl got her, got her, uh, got her second film. I was like, oh my god! So I want to be. A, so I got my first film, and I did my second. But then she did. She was going to be doing *Sophie's Choice*, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so
0: I read this part a little, a little movie called. of Nathan no but I mean <laughs> no I know I, I, read, I
1: read the book and I was so inspired by that book I remember that I had already played Jew, a Jew not only in a film that I had done but also I had done it on Broadway and won an award for it so I knew that I could play that character <laughs> the lead character opposite her the Brooklyn Boyd yeah, right you know <laughs> so and I, but listen this is true I finished the book, I'm living on Green Street down in Soho, before Soho was even called Soho. It was just like a rat-infested place right? Yeah. with my wife, Laura, in those days. I finished the book, I run down four flights of stairs into the street, and I'm so excited by this book that I run all the way down Canal Street, I reach the Manhattan Bridge, I run over the Manhattan Bridge in traffic into Brooklyn, into the neighborhood where Sophie's Choice is set, and I go... Uh, you know, Williamsburg, I'm here. I want to do this film. I'm born to do it. I know I can do it. And guess what? I don't get the part. I don't get the part. I don't even get to audition because I hear like 48 hours later that Kevin Klein has gotten the part, who's Jewish. And they cast, you know, like a Jew to play a Jew. And I think that's so unfair. And I, you know, because like I'm Jewish in my soul, you know, <laughs> and and I didn't oh. I didn't get it. And Kevin was great, and he, you know he's a friend of mine now. I would love but you to tell Kevin that I'm Jewish it. in my
0: soul, <laughs> oh, Kevin. Oh,
1: but as a young, you know, I <laughs> was com- I was competitive, yeah. I, and I was really excited, yeah. I was inspired by it because I, I just knew it was going to be great. Just by by reading the book, and of course it was great. And then to work with Meryl would have been fun,
0: right? So, right, because anyway. you had a relationship Yeah. So that was it. So that was the
1: hardest thing I ever lost.
0: Oh man! And then I, I I definitely wanted to talk a little bit about your role on the uh, the Lo, the Lois and Clark <laughs> adventures because it just you know that's seems to be one of, that was a defining role for your career. I mean, as far as I yeah. don't know, just based on the online presence that, yeah. that it has and i got to tell you i watched you doing a q and a at one of this like uh, comic con kind of type things there's a, there's a lot of weight that comes in there cuz there's people have such an attachment to those type of movies and those tv shows right what was that like
1: well look this goes back a little bit so uh, i told you that i um you know was sick of playing the romantic lead and so in the mid 80s uh um Uh, some French producers came uh, to to New York and they offered, and a French director, and offered me a film that they were going to shoot in Paris and New York and Montreal with a great French actress as my leading lady, uh, an actress called Natalie Baye, B-A-Y-E. And this film in French was called Lune de Miel, which means honeymoon in English. They were going to shoot it in what's called double version. (laughs) So we shot every scene in English, and then we shot every scene in French. Now I'm a guy who flunked French at Bates. So mm. what I did is that I hired a coach, and I worked with this coach for six months to learn
0: French. to learn French in six months. Right,
1: and I every day for hours a day, I worked on just the script in French, and uh, this coach um, sort of you know worked with me, and so anyway, but I was I was realized that my character was psychologically uh, deranged. It was a thriller, and I didn't know what was wrong with me. So I went to the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York, which is where all the New York City police detectives go to study, right? Yeah. And I went to the head of the abnormal psychology department, and I entered myself... Into psychoanalysis in character as the guy that I was playing. What? And I hired him to read the script and then to psychoanalyze me in character. And it and holy and, crap! And it turns out that he told me one other actor had done this. In the uh, Montgomery Clift had done it many years ago. He had coached Montgomery Clift when Montgomery Clift was playing Sigmund Freud. Yes. Wow. So I learned the difference between a sociopath and a psychopath and it turns out that I was playing a sociopath and a sociopath Doug is the kind of guy who can smile and look at you in the eye he looks like a leading man he smiles like a leading man he's your best friend but he will stab you in the back he will take everything you have without any conscience you know why Doug because he doesn't have a conscience he doesn't have a
0: conscience yeah. he is. he
1: is just greedy he's like a spider who spins a web into which you fall and then he just consumes everything he can of yours And so all I can tell you is that I made that film and I had a great time doing it. So cut to four years later, my manager calls me from, uh, I'm living in L.A. My manager calls me and uh, he says, you know, uh, I'm sending you over a script. I just got a call from Warner Brothers. They're having a hard time casting the Lex Luthor part in Lois and Clark over at Warner Brothers. So do you want to look at it? And I think immediately Lex Luthor... All right, he's the bad guy. That could be interesting because I definitely don't want to play Superman. Chris Reeve was a friend of mine. We grew up in New York together, you know, and we had the same agent and manager. And so I. He a nice guy. He was a really, really good guy, but I also saw how it limited his career. You know, he was stuck as Superman. And the minute you put that S, you know, on your chest, it's over.
0: There's a curse to it. (laughs) It's over.
1: So I thought, okay, you know, but Lex Luthor is different. So I read the script and I and I know instantly how this guy should be played. That is, I understand that Lex Luthor is a sociopath because of the training that I had had psychologically, and I understand that he wears Armani suits and that he's got to look like Donald Trump and think like Richard the <laughs> Third. Okay? And so I go to, I drive to Burbank, I go into Warner Brothers, I go to the president of Warner Brothers, who's Leslie Moonves, who now runs CPS, and I sit in his office, and they say, what do you got? And I stand up, and I do the monologue, I do a couple of scenes with him, and this casting director, and they go, okay, now tomorrow you got to go to ABC and convince them. So I go with everybody, and I get to ABC, and there's, uh, Bob Iger is the president of ABC, and twenty people in from the ABC room. in the th- in a theater at ABC that they have for especially for auditions and for screenings. Are you nervous? And it's like the screening. It's like exactly like the feeling that I had when I was auditioning at Yale. I was nervous, but at the same time I felt prepared. I thought, you know, again, it's fate. Is it gonna? It's it's either gonna it's either gonna be meant to be or it's not gonna be meant to be. So there's only one other actor in the in the waiting room, and he's a buddy of mine who was in missing with me, huh. and so I know him so well that I know that I'm better prepared to play missing than I mean. Uh, so Lex funny, Luther, it comes back his. to the sports kind
0: of that, right? that sort of you and know that. So, that's it. Willingness and that just drive and just that competitiveness.
1: And and I realize this, and he and I love this guy, David Clennon. <laughs> and I look him in the eye and I think to myself, no, I'm going to get this job, man. I'm sorry. Before I go into the room, I'm thinking that. Like, you know, you go out on the field and you, I'm going to catch this ball. I'm going to make that basket. I'm going to hit the baseball, whatever it is. So I go in and I do the job and I come out and sure enough on the way home, the phone rings. My, my phone rings and it's my manager saying, yeah, you got the part. So I played Lex Luthor and it was really fun to do. I Four understand. years. Yeah. Right? Yeah, on and off. Yeah
0: that's it and the TV work is good as an actor because TV it's just steady and you got a job for for you know yeah
1: but Doug let me tell you how that worked if you really want to know okay so I do the first season we do 22 episodes in those years not 10 like they do now 22 and but but I get the job while I'm living in LA but then Laura my wife has a nervous breakdown she hates uh, LA. It's, it's after the Rodney King riots and she wants to move back to New York. So I called my tenant in New York and uh, you because know, I bought this place where we we lived. I had rented it out. I give the guy six months notice. I ask him to leave my apartment and we move back to New York. I get back to New York and my manager calls me. And they said, okay, they picked up the pilot for 22 episodes. So I spend the next year of my life commuting from Manhattan to Burbank. <sighs> for every single week at my own expense uh, wow. 6,000 miles a week on, in the air uh, three days in New York four days at Warner Brothers and at the end of the first year uh, I'm fine with it I'm good but <laughs> Laura, my wife is like, you're never at home never, so guess what, I go to ABC and I go, you gotta let me out of my contract and I quit and they go, no, you can't quit. You're under contract. But I'll tell no, you what
0: becomes a big lawyer. No, no. So
1: I tell you what. I say I'll do Lex Luther episodes, and I do like four a year. And what I do have to do is go back to New York and reinvent myself. I give up. I can't even tell you how much money, but I'll just say it was worth it again to save my marriage. And so, and we have a young boy who's born, and you know, and she can't handle him, and it's like, okay. So what I do is I give it up, L.A and except for these four episodes, and I think, how am I gonna reinvent myself? And so that's when I wrote and directed Southie, because Southie, I I thought, okay, I'll be a director, and now, like you, I have produced life in having a son, because I'm like 40-something when my son is born. So I'm actually a producer now. I'm not just an actor. I'm a producer. I went to school as a director, and there's this part of me that I have a master's in directing, right, from Yale, that hasn't directed in 18 years. Nothing, Doug. Nothing that was laying dormant. So I thought, I tell you what, I'll fuse it all, and I'll start directing, and that'll be the way that I can stay in New York, be close to my family, and I'll just give up Hollywood. And so I, I think, okay, I'm going to... So I rewrite the script, and I start working with this guy, Jimmy Cummings, and I t- raise the money, we scout the locations in Boston, and we make the movie.
0: Yeah, with starring Donnie Wahlberg. Starting Donnie Wahlberg and Rose
1: McGowan and Amanda Peet and all Yeah,
0: he had a lot of big people in that. And
1: Mira, who I love, you know, from Nantucket here.
0: Yeah, that's... Uh, I mean, that so what was it like to be... Was that your... That was your first directing, film directing, right?
1: That was the first film I ever directed,
0: yeah. Yeah, and film directing is a big big difference than doing stage i mean yeah the 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 mission is essentially the same but you you know when you're shooting on location there's just so many variables that just well it takes
1: three years of my life to make it okay three years a play is like a couple of months okay three years three years to raise the money to write the script to rewrite the script it was the original script was written by two young guys and but you know there was a it was a, you know it just needed restructuring it took me a year to rewrite it and then another year to write with one of the guys to to get it all right and then raise the money and cast it and you know at one point we had a hollywood cast that all fell apart then i had to recast it with donnie and kind of boston cast which was much better and then finally i had to then edit it and you know score it and work on all the music and it was massive job it's crazy massive, massive, it's huge massive. i think
0: people uh, you know what's been great, actually, speaking of just the, the the process of making film, is Project Greenlight is really a, a great window into just how technical and dynamic sets are, and studios, and dealing with, you know, just the, the, the process. There's so many different components. And, and same with uh, theater, and this is something I, I talk about a lot, too. For me, personally, it's like music, to me, was so tangible, and I was... Thank God that I'm a musician because if I just had acting, I I think I really would have. It would have been very hard for me to maintain that existence. Music provided is so instant, whereas theater and film you need. There's so many you need other people. It just takes a lot more, and uh, it's just hard that process of trying to get through. I mean, I my only experience really I've done one film and I just did commercials. Which are mini sets, but very different, you know, because everyone should hopefully on the crew should have a mission, you know, commercials. It's everyone's there just to collect the paycheck, really.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a commercial job. But on a film, you know, particularly uh, in an independent film like like Southie was, um, uh, you know. Uh, it has to have a higher purpose. You don't want to dedicate years of your life to a story that doesn't have a purpose. And by that, I mean, you know, like a spiritual purpose. Because when you send it out into the universe, you want it to resonate positively in the collective unconscious. You do not want to be making schlock. You do not want to be making horror, slasher, killer, biker, whatever the, you know, movies. Because it's just, that brings the energy level down not up and you want to raise the energy
0: level if you're going to be devoting all that energy so how do they feel you know? about a John Waters film <laughs> you know I love his first that's
1: comedy that's different <laughs> I love John Waters I, so do
0: I I just like that that's I think if I that's my I like that style but it's the, the stakes are different it's but a, just as,
1: it just depends on who you are look yeah. I, I I was trained seriously and so I try to take my work seriously so all I can say is that I tried to make Southie you know have a resonance beyond just being whatever it is you know I, you know, so it has some you know whatever um, and, and, the, and then everybody gathers around you and then they inspire you and they lift you up when you're dead on your feet and you can't walk another step they you know everybody carries you and makes it better than you ever dreamed it could be how yeah. long
0: did it take you to shoot Southie
1: You know, the actual shoot in February of one month, four weeks, February. So it's two years of preparation to get to four weeks of shooting and then another year to finish it after that. Three years altogether. And then we took it out. uh, The first film festival that we um, could apply to is Seattle. We won the Seattle Film Festival and then we took it to Montreal and, and Lionsgate, which is a Canadian company. So at the Montreal Film Festival and they bought it and that was done. And that was it. And I would say that we were really lucky that way because uh, you know it's been playing continuously ever since uh, that we made it in 98. Yeah. So, you know. And
0: and you have uh, you know I also want to talk to you just there's been you know with Netflix and the way we consume media and you're involved directly with this because you're doing it you're producing it you know like Netflix there's such a this is a great time in television and film. Because there's so many great shows out there, there's so much. Like I was just listening. Uh, I listened to a lot of podcasts, and someone was just talking about. I think it might have been Mark Maron was, had a director on. He was, all these films can have a new life with Netflix and all these other things. So it's really, it's just a really great time. There's so many places now. You have Amazon. You have Netflix. You have all these people producing stuff. So there's a lot of work for an actor.
1: There are 400 television series being shot in America this year. This year, 400, okay, the all-time all record, and not just dramas. You know, that's including uh, reality television, but still 400. Episodes. That's an unbelievable amount of work for all the actors and technicians, and you know, the, it is the it teamsters is. and the caterers, and you know, <laughs> like the business is booming actually. For sure, it's been it, it is and it is and you're and you're right and you're right and films that used to get lost in the shuffle like. You know, if you go to Netflix and you go to Amazon and you look at their classic film list, you'll see stuff that was shot in the 40s, or the 50s, or the 60s and 70s, you know, that you will never would have seen in the old days. Because in the old days, as you know, you know, it played in the movie theater for a while, hopefully a couple of weeks or a month or whatever. It was a big hit. And then that was it. Then they invented, you know, videotape and then DVDs, and so you could buy it and have it in a library. But now you can access it at midnight. You wake up and you say, you know, I want to watch Midnight Cowboy tonight.
0: Right. Bang, there it is. It's just crazy. Yeah, it's, so it is kind of remarkable how, how it's really come to the forefront. There's so much out there now. So, and as you, as an actor, I'm sure you know, you want to be a sponge, and you can seek out these little rabbit holes and watch all of Montgomery Cliff movies. What was the uh I, the Philadelphia story? Mm-hmm. Is he in that um, Philadelphia story? Did he? I believe I, when I was I, studying, it's
1: Catherine Hepburn and and, and, uh, and I think it's oh, Cary no, Grant. It's Cary Grant. You're yeah. right.
0: Anyway, but I remember going through like a rabbit hole watching all those movies and that style of acting is so specific. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's funny that I watched a scene from you and I get the shakes. You you play the Lex Luthor a little Shakespearean a little. There, I, I get that completely I can in, even the way you, you articulate your words there's a little the underground the current I is, wanted to
1: bring that Richard the third thing in and there. I got that immediately yeah thank you that's so funny yeah
0: it's like oh wow he's really bringing the Shakespearean
1: well because Lex Luthor is a classical character yeah and he's a character directly from you know he's an archetype he's from our collective unconscious there's got to be a Lex Luthor uh, if Superman is gonna be super there's Hmm. always got to be a bad guy to make the hero a hero
0: do you have a favorite cinematic villain overall top
1: Uh, you know I loved what Heath Ledger did as the Joker Uh, and uh, interesting you know I loved Heath Ledger as an actor I have to say I loved him and I wrote originally did you ever work with him? no I never got to even meet him but I wrote a Grey Lady originally for Heath and then he died interesting yeah I, I was inspired by his work just as an actor, he was a really exciting young actor. And I saw everything that he'd ever did. And, uh, and then he died, unfortunately, really yeah. tragically, you know. So uh, we ended up with the right guy playing the part. But anyway, I loved
0: what he did. And, and I remember uh, speaking to the Grey Lady, which we can segue to, you know, yeah. nine years, uh, you stood up. And it, I, I was really taken by, uh, I went with Floyd. You invited him to come to a screening. I got to go and oh, you stood up and I, I had no reference for who you were. And I just immediately like when you said, you know, I've been working on this, and I as I appreciated the passion in there, and you, like this thing is your baby, nine years. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I call them the pillow moments, the stuff like when you wake up in the middle of the night. I oh, know maybe if I switch this around, or, like <laughs> those things consume you in nine years of to to get to the point now where it's finished and stuff. Yeah. You know, congratulations. Well, thank you, brother. And well, I just saw the passion, man. You had it. And I'm like, dude, this guy, he's legit. He's he's serious. He's getting up in front of everyone, thanking him for coming to watch the movie. And, you know, I I, I got it immediately. I'm like, I, I'm psyched. that's why I'm psyched you're here. Well, thank you, bro. <laughs> I mean, passion. let's
1: find a way to work together. You know, we'll find <laughs> another way. But um, the, the I'll, I'll just talk a little bit about Grey Lady. First of all, you know, I had shown the film, I had shown Southie to my buddy Armie and Bernstein. Army and Bernstein is key to the story only because after missing that film that I did with Jack Lemmon, right, that wins the Academy Award, and wins the, 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 you know, the Cannes Film Festival, Palme d'Or, and, you know, establishes me as a star in Hollywood, as a movie star, uh, I get offered a lot of films. And um, I don't want to do any of them. I, I, none of them are, I, I think, are worthy successors to the seriousness of missing. And missing it spoiled me, I realized now in retrospect in a way. so I turned down a lot of stuff that I probably should have done, like, I don't know, I can't even begin to tell you, um, all these films. So one day, though, a guy who you remind me of, and the night I met you and you were playing. At that oh, cocktail party. at yeah, that cocktail Sconcet, party, it, yeah. I told you.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. you, that you that, right.
1: reminded me of a friend here from Nantucket. Huh. And like you are his doppelganger on some level, dude. I'm just <laughs> telling you what's his name? Okay, his name is Greg Meredith. Is he, where is he? No, I'm saying he's in the Bardo. Okay. He, oh, okay. Okay. So Greg Meredith was was I you know, I had two great friends growing up here. I Eric Urban and Greg Meredith. Uh, and Jeffrey Cook, and uh, I mean a bunch of guys, but let's say Greg Meredith was a great friend, Sandy Maloney. But Greg Meredith was a bass player, a jazz bass player, played on the island, various clubs, played in New York. He was also, had a black belt in Kung Fu, and he moved like a magician. He was like a dancer, like you the way you move on stage when you play. You're 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 a dancer,
0: dude. Well, music is like physical to me. You yeah. have to move. Yeah,
1: I get it. And, and and that's who you are. You know, you move with a sinuous sort of energy that is also uh, contagious and you know. And and Greg had that same sort of thing that music just like he it rippled through him and then he sent it out, you know. So I loved him. And then one day he was riding uh, from town out to Sconset on a dirt bike through the moors and was killed in a motorcycle accident. Mm. he ran into a wire, which had been stretched across the road out by the airport. Decapitated? And decapitated on his motorbike. And I... Uh, get the call I'm at the Eugene O'Neill Memorial Center another great friend Gino Grimaldi calls me and said Greg's dead I burst into tears I, fall, I go out and back into the rehearsal for the play that I'm doing at the at the Eugene Memorial at the you know playwrights conference and then I get a second call five minutes later call for you Mr. Shea call I go running back into the office and I think if that was a joke I'm gonna kill somebody like
0: right. you know when
1: I get back to Nantucket if that was a joke I'm gonna kill him and then I got back in as my agent calling from New York saying, you got the job, you got the job. I go, what? You got the job. I go, what are you talking about? I'm still crying. They got the job. You have to, do you have your passport with you? you? You have to be in Spain, Madrid tomorrow. You start shooting the day after tomorrow. And mm-hmm. I had gotten the lead in a film called The Nativity to play Joseph in a biblical epic shooting in Almeria, Spain. And so I get these two phone calls within five minutes of each other, Doug.
0: Wow, that's but pretty I heavy. Have, and then-
1: but I don't have my passport with me, bro. So i go got to go back to New York. I go back, I mean, to Nantucket. I get my passport. I see all my friends that were mourning Greg's death. That's I pretty have heavy. to miss the memorial service. I have to go to Spain. And the day of his memorial service, I'm sitting on the beach in Almeria, and I'm crying under a palm tree. Jesus. Because I've lost a friend. It's the first big death that I've ever experienced in my life. Somebody that I loved, Right. And so all I can say is that I dedicated that film to him and then cut to five years later, Missing comes out and I get a phone call from my agent. They're sending you a script. You're being offered a film called All the Sad Young Men. And the story is about a guy whose best friend is dying and he has to rally all of his friends around him to make this guy's death the best possible death. And I think that's the, f-. I read it and I say, that's the film I'm going to do. And I, who's the writer? And I look in the script, it was written by a guy called Army and Bernstein. So, Army and Bernstein, uh, I call him up, you know, I say, hey man, he's in LA, he's casting the film. I say, I-, I love your film. He says, great. I said, when are you shooting? And he goes, August in Chicago. I said, no. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, no, not August in Chicago. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, I live on Nantucket, and I'm with my friends. My best friend just died. I'm going to make the film. I'm living the film that you just wrote about, which is why I want to do your film, but not August, not Chicago. And he goes, where do you say? And I said, he said, I'm coming there. I said, I'll tell you what, you come with me, and you hang out with me for a week, and hang out with my buddies on Nantucket, and if I'm wrong about Nantucket, I'll give up my summer, and my friends, and my morning, and I'll go and go do it and so he comes to Nantucket he falls in love with Nantucket he has a spiritual experience here (laughs) he calls the head of Warner Brothers and he moves the film to October and he spends the rest of the summer with me hanging out that's cool and so cut to 20 years later and the film becomes a film called Windy City and Kate Capshaw is my leading lady and uh, I have a great time and Armium becomes my soul brother that's all I can say yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. In a way, in a funny way, he replaces Greg uh, because of his spiritual content.
0: Are you guys still tight?
1: Uh, yeah. So he, he says, you know, and he moves to Nantucket. He gets married. He builds a house in Wisconsin. He lives around the corner from me. So for 20 years, and he builds a huge film company in Chicago, in, in Boston, I'm sorry, in L.A. called Beacon
0: Pictures, and
1: he, and he produces 50 films.
0: Gotcha. He produces Southie. You no, know, nope. he doesn't
1: produce Southie, but I show him Southie. Did he help you? And he, no, he didn't help me at all. But he knows that I can direct, right? Gotcha. Because I, I did that independently. So anyway, he says, let's go for a walk. This is nine years ago. Uh. And we go out into the moors. And I say, he said, we should work together again. So the clock is ticking. We're rounding <laughs> third. We're heading home. <laughs> right. You know, over 60, or we weren't over 60 then. We were pushing it, right? It's like, okay, dude. I said, what do you want to do? And he said, I think we should do a, a thriller and I think we should set it in a resort in the off-season. I go, okay. And he said, and because there's never been a feature film shot on Nantucket, why don't we make one here? I said, all right, what's the story? And he said, I don't know, you got to make one up. But it's a thriller. So, you know, there's certain rules of the genre. There's a cop, there's a crime, there's a girl, There's a. it's spooky, it's lonely, you know, you got to figure it out. But if you write it, you can direct it, I'll produce it, we'll make a movie together on Nantucket. So that inspires me. I said, well, what? that's it? And there's one other thing, Doug, I want you to hear. One other, He says, no, that's not it. He said, one more thing. He said, there's got to be a touch of poetry about the whole thing, the story, that allows it to transcend the genre. I go, a touch of poetry that allows it to transcend the genre. I said, the genre of thriller. And he goes, yeah, it can't just be a thriller. It's got to be more than that. But I get that because that's what I try to do with Southie is to make it
0: more than whatever it was. Interesting, from. yeah. So so that's nine years ago.
1: And I spent the next nine years writing it, putting it together. We go through the global financial meltdown. I come to Nantucket. I accept the job as the artistic director of the theater workshop because I realize that if I do that, not only can I give back to the theater workshop that gave me my start when I was 19 years old and I came over and I ended up on stage that first time. They're night. very loyal to them. But I would go back to work, but I would get to know every creative person on the island. I would get to know all the actors, the directors, the designers, all the musicians, and when it came to make, when it came time to make the film, I could harness all the creative energy on the island to make the film and then use the film
0: to help support the creative energy. Yeah, well, you did that. That's what we tried.
1: Yeah. And so that's how it So started. when does it come out? Well, now I'm in L.A. and uh, trying to figure out the distribution. And Which the, is, and,
0: I'm sure now there's... I mean, I, I, it's pretty complex. It's
1: complex because of all the digital stuff that you're talking about, and uh, and there are many choices and a lot of dead ends, and you got to be careful. And there are a lot of people who uh, think you view as low hanging fruit, and then you're going to be vulnerable, and they want to just like steal your film and screw you. Hollywood is a cutthroat, horrible place for independent film directors. If anybody's listening and they're thinking about being a film independent film director,
0: talk to me first. <laughs> yeah, I, you know that's the thing is you, you've been through the the gamut of uh of navigating hollywood you know from start to soup to nuts you know you've been on a hit show done film done television you know i think you do have a lot to offer as far as like you know advice and how to get through that and uh you know it's it's, it's it's like you said, it's a shitty business.
1: <laughs> Did you ever go mountain climbing or see a film, you know, like a guy climbs a mountain and he thinks he's at the top and then he looks over and oh my God, he's just like on a foothill, right? Right. There's another whole range. Have you seen The Revenant?
0: No, I haven't seen it with DiCaprio. No.
1: Anyway, so it's great. But anyway, the, what I realize about filmmaking is that there's always another mountain ahead of you.
0: Right. The The only uh, one I can think of that comes to mind that always stuck in my head about show business, it's an elephant. Taking a shit, and it's a guy scooping up the shit, and he's looking and he says, What, and quit show business? (laughs) Yes, (laughs) Yes, it's so, <laughs> you know, long, long it was always like, oh, that kind of seems like it in a nutshell. But uh, you know, for you, you know, you've you've had a great career. You know, and it continues. Well, you've had longevity. But that's the word.
1: But yeah, but so have you, right? So what I see in you is uh, a creative, new energy to the island, which is r- always welcome, but also a multifaceted uh, creative energy. Yeah, which is I'm kind of figuring it out. Always the secret to survival which is never to, you know, like, I don't know, like to try to branch out and use the creative energy. To, this is what the podcast you know, was, man. I this. was freaking
0: out. I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I was like, what is in my wheelhouse that I can do that I wanted to do something that was creative that could also bring to the community? Nantucket is an amazing community. That's one thing that I've been blown away with. Is yeah. The amount of community around here. Yeah. And really talented, creative people. Yeah. Doing cool stuff. Yeah. And what could I bring to it in the podcast? I love the medium. I was fascinated. So I, I bought the gear and just started doing it. Yeah. I didn't think too much about it. And it's been great, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, I can't even thank you enough for coming and sitting no, down man. and shooting the shit with me. This is the me.
1: first podcast I've ever done. I'm really honored to be on your show. Nice. Well, we'll have you back, man. You know, dude, you're great. And welcome to Nantucket. I know you've been here for a while. you got a whole family scene going on. Well, it's on, new. But, it's a year. I know. I but still, you know, hopefully you'll stay. And oh, we'll I, find yeah. ways of channeling your creative energy. And like, you know, so, so it just gets, so we all just... Do more and more with each other. Totally you know? and keep evolving. That's it. Get better and better and better. Nice. All well right, that's bro.
0: it, John Shea. We've been we've hour and nineteen. Oh my god, bro. All that's right. awesome, oh, thank man. You. Thanks so much for yeah, being on it, man. Thank you, man. It's a pleasure getting to know you. My pleasure. Somebody took the big bus. And somebody's got the and somebody's shut. John Shea, everyone. John Shea, accomplished actor and island native. Now, great conversation, John. I can't thank you enough for taking the time. What a what an inch. I feel like we could have just kept talking forever, man. Uh, lots of interesting stuff there, you know. Lots of lots of interesting things to take away from that conversation, you know thought it was really interesting how he uh, you know he knew early on that if things weren't meant to be they weren't meant to be and uh, you know some people come to that uh, road early in life some people come later but the sooner you get it and you figure it out the smoother the path maybe in life is I don't know John certainly seems to be a uh, a passionate guy who clearly uh, you know has longevity you know, look at him working, you know, living in Nantucket, going out to LA, New York, making movies, directing, and uh, his career are really interesting. It's uh, unbelievably uh, challenging to, to maintain a, a career, you know, as an actor, I think, and uh, you know, that's just a testament to John's talent, and he clearly is a cool guy. I'm super psyched that I got to know him. It was a great conversation. Man, alright folks, that's it. Episode 28 in the books. Listen, if you guys are fans of Inside the Whale, uh, I got to start getting better with the social media component of things. And there's a Facebook page, Inside the Whale ACK, and I have an email address. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, don't be afraid to drop me an email at, at com. and uh, also Instagram is Inside the Whale ACK, and uh, check it out because you know, unfortunately, social media is a necessary evil. Uh, it's part of uh, it's just part of what I got to do, you know. Just recording the podcast, getting someone in here is just one portion of producing this whole thing. And then uh, and then you got to get it out there, and that's the social media component. So uh, if you like it, support it, guys, and uh, we can keep growing this thing. All right, guys, that's it. Enjoy this beautiful, beautiful spring-like weather we're having here at the end of February. Get out and do something. Be well. Rock on.